And now reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the written, the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O oh Lord, open this scripture to our understanding. And I also pray for a pastoral need that I neglected to mention. We do pray for Jackie Mulcahy and the loss of her mother to death. Be merciful to Jackie, we pray, and the family. Bless this sermon, we pray, that it may reflect your grace in Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible concludes the portion that I read today. Verse 18 of chapter 3. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. If I didn't already have a life verse, my theme verse from the book of Philippians, this might be the one I chose, would choose for that. And the reason is that the joy and the peace of my life is that I'm grounded upon the security of Christ and his justifying work, that he gives me a standing before God by grace. But the daily struggles of my Christian life lie in the area of sanctification. This is where a verse like 328 helps me to trust in Jesus, to day by day make slow and steady progress in becoming Christ-like, sanctified into an ever-increasing degree of holiness. To be conformed to the image of Christ is to become holy, and holiness is one of those topics that we avoid in polite conversation, even among believers. It's partially because we don't want to get convicted by others of not being holy in any particular area of our life. But we also don't want to be known as a holy roller or holier than thou. We don't want others to think that we're uppity or superior. So we leave it on the side. But holiness is important. For as we read in Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You won't see the Lord without his holiness. Now, let me define a couple terms here. Justification is different than sanctification. Justification is the once and for all 
act of God's grace, whereby through faith in Christ, we are regarded and accounted righteous before God, which opens our relationship to him, that allows us to come into his throne room, that gives us a doorway to heaven at the last day. Sanctification is the continuous and progressive work of God's grace whereby through faith in Christ we are ever more and more conformed to the image of Christ, becoming holy practically and actually in our own flesh, in our own mind, over a lifetime. Now justification and sanctification are different, but they are inseparable. If there's no sanctification in your life, if there are no signs of any change from a sinful, worldly lifestyle, then we must admit there remains the question, have you been justified? Have you trusted in Christ? God never saves a person whom he does not begin to change at that very moment of salvation. Now, Christians do backslide, but the sign that they are backsliding and not unbelievers is that this backsliding bothers them, and they desire to come back to Christ at some time, maybe not all the time, maybe they're in a time of blindness, and they want to put Jesus behind them, but the backsliding Christian is the one who at some time before he dies desires to come back, even though they can't see the way back, and so these verses here in chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, speak to us of transformation. That sanctification which is seen and experienced as we live into the truth of these verses. So let's begin by first verses 12 to 14. Hopeful boldness through the new covenant in Christ. Verses 15 through 17, living with liberty in the power of the Spirit. And then verse 18, seeing Christ, we are sanctified by the Spirit. Verses 12 to 14, hopeful boldness through the new covenant. The content of this entire chapter is an explanation of the new covenant. It's mentioned in verse 16, verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter that kills is that letter which was engraved on those uh, tablets of the law, which Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, and they were engraved there by God's own finger. And that is a, a letter of condemnation because we, apart from faith in Christ, can never live up to that. The righteous requirement of the law is good and just. The law is holy and true, but our response to it is rebellion. We can't live up to it, nor do we want to. But when we see Christ revealed, either anticipating him, as the Old Testament believers did, looking ahead to the promised Messiah, or are we looking back to Christ? This new revelation of God in the flesh is the new covenant 
The final phase of the covenant of grace established in the Garden of Eden when God said that he would remove the hate, the enmity that man has for God, that he would remove that rebellion from our heart by sending the seed of the woman. And so now that Christ has come and, come, and the Holy Spirit has been given, we are empowered from within to live obediently by the power of God. We're given the joy of seeing God work in and through our life. Do you hear the joy in that verse, number 12? Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Since we have the hope that we're not left to fight this battle on our own. So many people think that the Christian religion is all about our own personal battle, and we've just got to live up to some standard, and if it doesn't work during the week, well, you come back the next Sunday and get a little more boost. No, the, the, the whole point of the Christian faith is that 24-7, we are not living this alone. We are living in the Spirit of God with the body of Christ around us to support us in our walk. We have hope, and Paul does not hold back from the hope in his preaching. He declares it freely. There is no veiling of his message, no veiling of his life. There is simply full transparency and openness about sin and about the Savior who is strong to save us from our sin. But there's also no holding back in the passionate prayers that he gives. For we see in Ephesians chapter 3, the talks about access, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You have confidence to come in to the presence of God. You don't have to wonder, was I good enough today to do that? Was I, was I a good boy? Was I a good girl? Sometimes we, we talk about our kids. You know, you'd be a good little boy. And, and, you know, probably that's not the best angle. You know, usually we, we should think about our kids as, as being kids who are under grace also. That, that they are sinners and we need to recognize that. And we need just to call them to trust in Jesus. But sometimes I use the language, you know, be a good boy, be a good girl. And we, we, we think that's the way God is toward us. And, and that's not the way that we get into his presence, by being good little men and women. It's by faith that it is according to Christ that we have boldness and access of confidence through faith in him. For this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can have boldness in approaching God by faith in Christ. And that leads us to a, a mark of a humble, God-dependent spirit, which is a dedication to prayer. Now, this is different than in the Old Testament when Moses was reading the law to the people of God. It says in verse 13, Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away 
in Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, when he came down from the mountain, it says in 29 of Exodus 34, that when he brought down the tablets in his hand, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. That his skin shone when he was in the presence of God, and then that shone when he came down. In verse 32, it says, Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And 33, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Note that it's during the preaching and the prophesying and the revelation of this law that he allowed them to see his face. He veiled he showed that, that, that he had authenticity of leadership. They knew he was in the presence of God by seeing that glory. And it brought a veritable uh, affirmation of the truth of these commandments. But then, when he wasn't preaching, he put a veil on his face. And it was like a parable saying, your sins render you unable and unworthy to behold the glory continuously. You remember they had cavorted at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They had made golden calves and they had uh, partied on in all the ways you think of partying. And they had a rebellion on their hands. And Moses saw that their heart was not changed that they were not ready to come back to God who had delivered them out of Egypt. He had already saved them. He had already brought them out of slavery, and yet they were acting in ways totally contrary to his character. They were unwilling to receive what God had to communicate to them through Moses. They didn't take to heart what was being proclaimed. And so even to this day, it happens, verse 14, even to this day at the time of uh, Paul, back 2,000 years ago, and even to today, 2,000 years later, when uh, the, these folk uh, read the Old Testament, there's still a veil there. They still don't get it. They can't see Christ in the Old Testament. And even in the liturgical appointed readings, of the book of Isaiah, as this book is read through in the synagogue today, guess what? They leave out Isaiah 53. They go from Isaiah 52, 12, and they jump over to Isaiah 54, and then they read uh, 55 and 56, and you'll wonder, why did you jump over that? Because it's so clear there that all we who... Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the leadership doesn't want that out there. And there's a, an unwillingness uh, there's, to see the truth of Christ found in the Old Testament. Their minds are blinded. But by way of contrast, the veil has been taken away in Christ. There is no condemnation and death under the law when we have Christ in our life. And 
Hughes puts it this way. There is a message of grace and mercy and life to every sinner who repents and believes as we gaze upon Christ. The second point is verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What that means simply is that when you trust in Jesus, your life begins to make sense. The veil is taken away from all those things that just make this world perplexing to the unbeliever. Why is there pain in this world? Why, when I try hardest, do I get most frustrated? Why do I have this sense of foreboding when I go to funerals? I try to paper it over, but yet there's still this stuff I don't figure out. But when you turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. The revelation of my sin is before me. I realize that's the source of my death and my fear of death because I don't want to go there. And yet the revelation of Jesus Christ sent into the world to be my Savior is my hope. He is the one who came to obey that law, the law that had been given by Moses. And he obeyed it perfectly because he loved his heavenly father and he wanted to please his father. And in the old practice of the cutting of covenants, which is how you start a covenant, by cutting a sacrifice, yet Christ at that moment was the perfect sacrifice, having obeyed all the law, to go to the cross in our place and so when we see that, then we see that God is in a process of having saved us, that he wants to sanctify us. And difficult circumstances in our life begin to make sense because we see that that's how God is sanctifying us. He's bringing us through trials so that we can trust him fully. For all things work together for the good of those who love God who are the called according to his purpose. You see, it begins to fit. When you turn to Christ, the veil is taken away. All the bad stuff, the tough stuff that you don't figure out without Jesus, you begin to see it as God's opportunity to teach you, to go to him, to have a change in your life through his spirit, that we will no longer trust in self, but see God transforming us. And that transformation is so evident in verse 17. For where the Lord is, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We begin to see that we're not living our life under the circumstances of being a slave, but we are living our life under the circumstances of having the liberty of adopted daughters and sons of the Most High God. And we walk in the liberty of that relationship. We are not cowering before God as this angry being in heaven who is just waiting for us to make one false move and then strike us down with a, with a thunderbolt. We rather see that when we come to conviction of sin, we go to God right away with it. And when he shows us a sin through a circumstance, we come in repentance and we say, God, change me. Help me to grow through this and become more Christ-like. The sad thing is many of us live like we were still slaves. In 1861, 
There were three slaves, Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mallory, who had been leased by their masters to the Confederate Army to work on the defense batteries in Virginia at Sewell's Point. And they took off by night and went to the Union lines and there cast themselves on the mercy of Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, who declared them no longer enslaved, but rather to be those who have a, a standing uh, in right standing there in the north. And so these continued now to work, but they worked for the Union side. And they were given teaching. One Mary S. Peak began to teach both adult and child former slaves to read and to write. She herself was uh, of African ancestry. She was the first black teacher hired by the American Missionary Association, which sent numerous teachers, both white and black, to the South to teach. And so it was in the name of Christ that liberty came, that this American Missionary Association, an abolitionist group founded on 1846 in Albany, New York, just south of here, became a means of bringing education and also the gospel to those who were former slaves. They often had the gospel already in their own worship styles, in their own experiences of the gospel, even as slaves, but this was brought to them. Wouldn't it have been sad if these three men, Frank Baker, James Townsend, and Shepard Mowry, just left behind the freedom they had, the liberty they had as new beings up in the north with a new privilege to read the word of God and to work for liberty against the south? Wouldn't it have been sad if they just went back to their former masters? Don't do that. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to trying to win your approval. It's not always people looking for approval according to the Bible. They might just be looking for approval by being woke. That they'll look for approval for this world. That there's some kind of standard out there that, that, the, that the press or the popular culture has for them to live up to. But whatever it is, whether it's a, trying to live up to a biblical standard or a worldly standard, don't go there. Instead, the third point, verse 18, see Christ and be sanctified by the Spirit. We see here, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. If you take a look at this mirror here, you can look straight on and see yourself. Excuse me, Mrs. Chapman. But if you stand on the side, and you're over here, and you look from my angle, I can see out the door. I can see that little well cover there. And when I behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, that glory is a reflection in the face of Christ, of the Father, whom no man shall see and live. 
So I look upon that mirror and Christ shows me the Father in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When I see Christ, I see the fullness of deity. And when I look at Christ, I am transformed to be like Christ. That which we idolize, we become like. If we behold an idol, whether it be money, or whether it be success, or whether it be sex, when we become uh, entranced by going after that idol, we become like it, and the world never pays us back. The world always disappoints. The world will always let us down because it wants another pound of flesh from us. It wants a new devotion to making that money without giving us a return eternally. And so I call you today not to look at the world, but to behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Look at Christ and then be transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's a progress. It's not all at once. You don't become Christ-like all at once. So let's step back a moment. Think about being justified. Look at Christ in this sense. Look at Christ in the sense that he described in John chapter 3 when he described that allusion to an Old Testament when the, the snakes came and beat the, bit the people of God because they were in rebellion and they were dying. And Moses was commanded by God to put up a bronze serpent on a staff and to tell all the people to look upon that. And so Jesus said, that's a picture of me. They were saved from the poisonous snakes. They survived. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You've got to look upon the son lifted up at the cross. Look upon him in faith. Looking is not your working. Looking is your believing and saying, you are my hope. I shall entrust myself to you. But the looking continues. It goes on. It goes on because the looking is to look to Jesus every day. Every worship experience we have as a church family. And it is in that looking that we are sanctified. We're transformed into the same image. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because isn't it when we look at people that we tend to become like them? Isn't it true that sometimes in the family, when a little boy looks at his dad, he becomes like his dad, and when a little girl looks at her mother, she becomes like her mother? We become those things that we gaze upon. And it's also in the church family, and I think that's important because some people, you know, you know, so much for my dad. <laughs> Leave that one behind. So much for my mom. But, but, you know, I would hope that you could see a church family where there are at least a couple people here that you could look up to, 
that you could find a, a mature believer that you want to imitate? Just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me. Why? Because I'm so good? No. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. He's looking to Christ, and he is a real-life example that he says, Imitate me. Look at me. And he says also in Philippians 3.17, Join with others in following my example, brothers. And take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. If you see somebody living according to the pattern written in the book, take note of that. As that can be an example of following Christ. And it does say this, but we all, we all, it's a corporate experience. We all are looking with unveiled face as in a mirror to the glory of of the Lord. Christianity is a team sport. You can't do it alone. You need examples. You need mentors. And most important, you need worship as we worship God together with his people. Important thing is to behold them. A second important thing is that we must remove every veil that could hide him. You see, there's a lot of veils that come into uh, religion. And we can't hide Jesus behind human religion. We can't obscure the purity of his gospel. We can't turn the church into something that it isn't. We're not a social service agency. We want to do good through this church. We want to send teachers to help those people who are uh, laboring as uh, refugees from the South, just they did, like they did in the 1840s. We want to be people who care about uh, those matters of oppression. But our central focus has to be always the proclamation of Christ, that those are only means to an end. They are not the end in themselves. That we would have Christ crucified, resurrected, and coming again as the focus of this ministry. And there can be veils also imposed by the culture. It says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We must remove the veils that obscure Christ, keeping Christ at the center. And the third thing we need to see is that it is Christ's glory and no other person's glory or no other cause's glory that is to be reflected in this place. There's no elevation of a man or a woman. There's no personality cult like you can get so easily in some churches or parachurch ministries. There's to be no political bias or mention of political leaders or loyalties in this place. This is a Jesus place, and it must remain that way so that people of many different backgrounds can hear the gospel. Now, we will proclaim moral truth. We will proclaim ethical imperatives found in the Bible as those 
truths and those imperatives are exposed and explained in the regular preaching of God's word through the biblical books. But we're not going to start talking about stuff off the pulpit just because it happened to be in the newspaper last week. The glory of Christ alone shall be reflected from this pulpit. God is a sufficient shepherd of his church that through his preached word, we shall see his people built up. So in a practical sense, in an everyday basis, I call you every day to read the Bible. Get a glimpse of Jesus in the New Testament. See him revealed in the Old Testament. Behold Christ and meditate on him. As uh, Thomas Watson puts it, the devil will let men profess or pray or hear in a formal matter, which does him no hurt and them no good. But the devil opposes meditation as being a means to compose the heart and make it serious. He can stand your small shot, like scatter shot, like in a shotgun. But if you, he can stand your small shot if you do not put in this bullet of meditation. He cares not how much you hear, but how much you meditate. Think on Christ as you read the Bible. Think about him, pray to him, and consider the implication of his word to your life. Furthermore, enjoy Christ in the fellowship of his church, in the fellowship of the worship and the opportunities we have for education and fellowship. Consider Christ as we consider Christ in the lives of other believers, whether that's in our home or whether that is in this church family. Come to Christ and be sanctified as looking into a mirror, we see the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let us pray. O oh Lord, change us, transform us. Let us walk in the liberty of the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. Let us always leave behind the legalism that can be religious or otherwise. A legalism which has us measure up to somebody's standard in order to be approved. Let us know that Christ fulfilled all righteousness, has died for us, has brought us to himself, and is changing us day by day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.